This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. So we have been doing a long stretch of parables, and we took a couple of weeks, and we sort of dove into some other things, but we are back, and this is one of my favorite stories in, well, yes, favorite stories in the Bible, one because it's so complicated, one because it threw me for a loop over and over again whenever I would read it, and how it invites us to get out of the mindsets that we're born into and we grow up in to see God's vision of the world in a different way. So uh, I'm going to return to our wonderful, handy-dandy little uh, bullet point list. I know everybody loves it when there are bullet points in a sermon. Um, But just to remind us that um, a parable is a very short story, right? So there are very specific things that a parable does. It is set in the time of place of Jesus and a chosen form of teaching by Jesus. It is addressed to real people. This is not a story about what the angels are doing. This is a story about people and what people do. It takes on real issues of discipleship. In this case, money, right? But also in there we see some other wonderful things. The big one that parables do, it dismays us or surprises us. We don't actually want it to mean what it ends up meaning. It tells us something about God. And it tells us something about humanity and is directed to life on earth. So be suspicious if someone tells you a parable is about what the angels are doing. I assure you, if Jesus told the parable, it is not about angels. It is about all too human folks like us. So here we have a short story, and so it has two main characters, right? The main character is our good steward here. I kind of, you know, I looked through all these different portraits to see who kind of captures the energy, see people, see all sorts of different kinds of people. And then the rich, the rich man um, definitely looked like he was not uh, happy at the moment. And then here's uh, two other views of the same uh, two main characters, how they might look different. Here's our, our steward again, Parde. As the one ancient text read, a steward who, who tried to defend himself, I didn't, I didn't eat the extra money, he said. But maybe he was partying a little much. Maybe, maybe that happened. And then the rich man coming in to say, ah, excuse me, please tell me what is going on. So ill-gotten gain, not so good, and kind of comes home to roost. Okay, so we have a story with characters, but it is addressed to real people. And this is the cool layering in these parables. It's, it's a story, but it's a, addressed to real people. He's talking to real flesh and blood people, so it's a double layer. So who is he talking to here? And here, this story is directed directly to the disciples. He has gathered the disciples together. This is a teaching story. And 
as far as what would this, the disciples look like? I thought, well, you know, let's make them flesh and blood, right? And so again, looking at these online portraits and these expressions of faces, you know, among the disciples were fishermen and mothers and brothers and tax collectors, and one was an assassin. There was a betrayer among the disciples. There was young men eager to prove themselves and show their worth, perhaps, inheritors of the tradition of Jesus and the first leaders of the Jesus movement. But still, they were just people. Their ethnicities were primarily Judean, Jesus' actual listeners, but they were also people. People gathered thoughtfully to listen. People gathered to follow. Brothers, right? We have the brothers who are disciples, fishermen. Today, we think of everybody has having to be older, but in those days, when you reach the age of maturity, you could follow a rabbi, you could follow Jesus. And you know there was the overly intense disciple because there's always one of those, right? Even in every study group. And the called thoughtful girl who stepped away from home and family to follow Jesus. And this guy, I uh, scrolled down the portraits and I lingered on him for a long time. I, the emotion in his face really captured me. I imagine there must have been a disciple with this expression, so earnest that it hurts, you know, filled with pain, with longing, and yet standing right next to God. Can you imagine such a thing? And then, of course, in the back, we would have definitely had a guy like this, right? Because Jesus is telling the story to the disciples, but guess what else? The Pharisees are right over there, and Jesus is speaking loud enough for the Pharisees to hear him. And um, this guy, I can see him in the back, like looking over to see how they're taking this story that really won't be, remember that idea of being dismayed by the story. The Pharisees are not, Right. Maybe not. They'll be invited to like it, but they may not like it. So, takes on real issues of discipleship. It dismays or surprises us. And the Pharisees may be dismayed, but the disciples may also share that dismay because disciples lived in the real world too. The disciples were merchants. Some of the followers of Jesus had great wealth. Some had nothing. And unlike the steward and the rich man who are characters in the story, the disciples were flesh and blood and pulled by the very forces that Jesus describes. So the story again in a nutshell is there was a certain rich man who heard that his household manager was squandering his estate. And he called the manager in and he said, what is this I hear about you? What have you been doing? You can't be my manager anymore. And the household manager said to himself, ah, I'm going to be fired, and I, I don't know what else I'm going to do with myself. I said, ooh, I know. I'll better, I'll better do something, or I'll be, I'll be like an exile in my own community. Nobody will even want me in their house. So the manager goes out to the folks he knows owes the master a lot of money, and he slashes their debt. Oh, don't worry about that 900 gallons. 500 gallons is fine. 500 gallons is fine. 
And then we get this last verse, and this is thought to be the, 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 these last two verses, the ending of the parable. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. So doesn't this go against like everything we were taught, everything we believe, everything, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, what? Okay, then there's verse nine, and it says, I tell you, this is the verse translation we read, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Again, like, wait, what? So this is a translation problem. Drives me a little nuts, not gonna lie. So the translator, translators here have made it nice and easy for us to read this. They're not challenging us. They're not doing what parables do, which is to dismay and surprise us, right? They are giving us a nice, easy version of, don't worry about it. If you're making a lot of money, just like, you know, have parties once in a while and people will love you. So the King James Version gets this right in their translation. And this is what they, that verse says. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, you may receive, be received into the everlasting home. Okay, I know, more confusing. I see CJ looking at me like, what? That's not helping me figure it out. I don't know, I'm just projecting. Maybe, maybe you got it, maybe you're ahead of me. But it does beg the question, what on earth is unrighteous mammon, right? We know mammon is a word for wealth, but it's also the word for ill-gotten gains. It's not a good way to make money. It's an extraction kind of word. So ancient people made the same mistakes that we do. Many ancient people uh, believed that rich people had the blessing in favor of God, and the wealthy cultivated that belief by parading around in fancy robes and taking all the honor for themselves and saying, oh yes, clearly God has blessed us. Don't we look marvelous in our new silks? So the word maman, though, means dishonest wealth, ill-gotten gains, and this question of, what is the difference between prosperity, where we share together in the good fruit of the ground, the fig tree and the vine and good community where everybody has enough to eat, that everybody has a nice warm down comforter to sleep under, right? Where, where is the difference between these two things? And we so much, so badly want to make that manager honest, and we so much want to make this money good that we forget to read the parable in its own way. So I have an outlier example for you, an extreme example that'll help put this into focus. I want us to think about the pharmaceutical industry for a second. So there's been a pattern in the pharmaceutical industry over the last 30 years of price gouging for important drugs. Um, fast and awful examples are like life-saving drugs like insulin and EpiPens. In 1923, the inventor, discoverer of insulin, sold the patent for a dollar, these men did, because they knew it would save lives. In 1966, a vial of insulin cost 75 cents. Today, it costs up to $300. Diabetics need up to four vials a month just to stay alive. EpiPens also saw a, pre a steep price hike. Parents of children across the US were panicked when the life-saving pens rose in cost 400% and now cost $600. And we have, we, like half of our families are, are in poverty or near poverty now 
$600 is a lot of money. That's, that's food money for the month. So then there's the classic but horrifying example we all know of Martin Shrekeli, right? Of Turing Pharmaceuticals, who raised the price of a decades-old but life-saving drug 5,000% from $13.50 a tablet to $750 a tablet. And he got the brunt of consumer rage around this. But he is not the exception. He, was, he has been the rule. This has been the tactic in the pharma, uh, pharmaceutical industry because it's all about making money. And what kind of money are they making here? So I've got, I got a new way to tell this story. Jesus said to his disciples, a certain CEO of a certain pharmaceutical company heard that his sales manager had been wasting the company funds. He called to the sales manager into the New York headquarters and said, what is it that I am reading in the newspaper about you? You are supposed to be discreet about the company's price gouging. You are supposed to be making me rich, and you made me look bad with these terrible headlines. I'm risking investigation now, and the shares will fall. I will be sending out a press, a press release that you are fired first thing in the morning, and I will be hiring a public relations manager. Get out of my office. So the sales manager says to himself, ah, I have to fly back to Detroit and clear out my office before that press release hits. But what job am I going to do next? No one likes me because of what I've been up to. And with these headlines, no one will hire me or even shelter me. I'll end up on the street. Ah, but then he had an idea. So he Ubered to the airport and awaited his flight back to Detroit, took out his cell phone along the way and called every pharmacy serving every small town across America that he could think of. And he called, then he called the press. And he announced that the pharmaceutical company was going to do the right thing. It was, in fact, going to be more than generous. It was offering special rebates on insulin and EpiPens, the two most necessary life-giving drugs in its holdings. And it was a gesture of magnanimity from the CEO himself. The news headline about the rebates hit the online news within an hour. The CEO got a ping alert that his company was named in a breaking news announcement and followed up. There were several inquiries about whether or not there was going to be a press conference. And boy, were the headlines good. They made him look like an honorable man. The Market Watch app on his phone beeped, alerting him that the company's stock shares just bumped up. He chuckled to himself, saying, that guy is one smart sales manager. Now, was the sales manager actually repentant? I don't know. But in my mind, I'd like to make him a little bit repentant. I'd like to say that now he was welcome in communities across the country for having done the right thing. And he bought a farm in the Midwest, and he worked to lobby Congress for the rights of patients to access life-saving medication. And he was fortunate enough to live near his grandchildren, and he gave them this word of wisdom. Children, he said, give generously. Make friends of yourself by unrighteous mammon. In other words, ask yourself, what are you stewards of 
Be dishonest to the wealth of the world and honest to following God. Use direct, uh, so use, redirect, and reinvest the unjust wealth of this world back into helping people, feeding people, and doing good. So this is really a very practical lesson, the lesson for the disciples who are listening. And that does seem like the end of the story. So if there are ill-gotten gains, don't just bury them in a canyon. Use them to do good in the world. Redirect them to doing good. But this is also an honor-shame story. And the second uh, character here is the rich man. He has been publicly shamed. Remember, in honor and shame cultures, it's what happens in public that matters, not private. So as long as he's wheeling and dealing in the back, nobody cares. But as soon as it becomes public, it's very shaming, right? Martin Shrekley, once it became very public, he experienced quite a lot of shame, right? So there's, so, uh, and what uh, the rich uh, and well, uh, it, it's not, the word rich can be troubling here, but what people craved in those old days more than money was honor, because honor was influenced culturally. You could move in good circles and talk to people and have an impact. So the steward has this short window to work in because he knows that the minute it is public that he is fired, that he will lose his chance to make things right. And if money was the most important thing in the steward's world, slashing prices wouldn't help him, right? That's why we get so confused about this par parable. We think that it's bad that he slashed the prices, but it's good that he did. It was honorable that he did. And because the steward is the, the, um, the, the rich man's steward, so it's thought of that, I wish he had a name, but this, this good gentleman, because he, because he was his servant, it was thought, they were thought to be the same. So what the steward does reflects on his master. So the steward does the right thing to save himself. But here is the rich man's chance. Will the rich man be an, the honorable man that the steward has made him seem to be? Will he at the press release say, we're not doing anything of the kind. In fact, we're doubling down on the insulin prices. Or will the, will the rich man see an opportunity for mercy? In the old days, that steward could be picked up and punished severely. That was among the choices of this rich man. The other choice was mercy. The other choice was the cracking open of real, actual honor instead of just the false honor he paraded around in. Which will he take? And the parable doesn't really say. But what Jesus leaves open in the possibility, what the guy in the back is hoping that the Pharisees hear is that there is room, time, right now. We can shift the economy of pain, shift the economy of greed, take what is ill-gotten, take what is harmfully acquired, and turn it to good. And the door opens through mercy. An honorable man isn't merciful. A merciful man is honorable, and it's always in that order.
I like to think that this gentleman repented and became an example of the community of God that was possible and used the unrighteous mammon to make this world better. Shift the structure, live into a good life. Mercy transforms the heart. On the rich man, they didn't have a chance to just do mercy, but to experience it. And so I believe, and I'm going to hold to this in my Pollyanna way, that he was indeed transformed, and that that call extends every day to all of us. Amen. We have a hymn. enter into our time of offering when we can uplift our gifts with great joy, uh, knowing that they will be used and transformed for this good world. And we have a very special soloist with us today, uh, Sophia Snow, uh, singing Caro Me Ben. Oops, better not let me butcher that. So actually, Sophia will be singing O Del Mio Dolce okay. Ador by Gluck, which is Beloved, I Adore You. Um, so, change.
What a blessing to have such gifts shared in our world and right here. Let us bless the offering. Amazing and wonderful God, thank you for all that we are given. May you transform all that we have to your goodness in every way. Amen. Stand for the benediction. I'm going to say a prayer for us here together, but I'm going to imagine that we are part of that great cloud of witnesses standing side by side with our brothers and sisters from Havra and uh, Temple Emek Shalom. Imagine them standing next to you right now, not just the folks that are here with us, but age to age, descendant to descendant. We are one family in our good God. Take with you the light of all that is good in all of creation and let it shine. Let it shine widely and brightly for you are good people and this is a good world.